0: Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hanger Z Podcast. I
1: want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County
0: for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's aviation unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli-Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy.
2: What is up, guys? It's Halsey Shutter with the Helicopter Podcast, and as always, I'm super excited to be here. Uh, big thanks to our partners over at AMHM Publishing and the Vertical Helicast platform. If you haven't checked out Vertical Helicast yet, I highly recommend you do. It's my podcast and two other amazing podcasts, The Hangar Z and The Real Rescue. And of course, big shout out to our sponsors at Bell Helicopter and Celicopter. Uh, we appreciate you making this show possible. Uh perusing around as one does uh Facebook, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of like sometimes just droning away in my phone. Uh, and I'm looking through videos and and I I this this guy popped up doing some cool helicopter videos and I got interested in it and I kind of started looking at more of the videos and I was like, "Man, this guy has some pretty fun content." And so, what did I do? I reached out and asked if he wanted to be on the show. And uh, luckily enough, he said yes. Yeah. So, Devin Bowen, welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. How are you doing, buddy?
0: I'm great, man. Thanks, Halsey, for having me. I appreciate you. That's, I feel like that's how a lot of people in the helicopter industry have heard from me, uh, putting out social media content, which has been really fun to do.
2: Well, I think it's awesome. And you know, I've talked, uh, I've talked about it a fair amount on the podcast, but it's always good to reiterate that the positive to me on social media is the fact that... Uh, that I think the the new generation is able to uh, see what we're doing as helicopter pilots and actually see that it's obtainable. We've talked about it on the show before, of like this this idea of first generation pilots. Like I'm a first generation pilot. No one in my family has been a pilot. Yep. If I would have been able to say watch your Facebook videos or your Instagram or others when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, that would have made the path a little more clear. So I think that's really neat. And you know, I'm not sure what your motivations were for creating the videos, but have they turned into kind of more than you expected? And and have you heard from a lot of people that they've made a positive impact on maybe choosing to be a helicopter pilot?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just like a quick background, I graduated high school, didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go into the military route. It just wasn't for me. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to go to college or anything. So I was kind of stuck in the position that a lot of people are when they graduate high school, they don't know what to what they want to do. So I went down a YouTube rabbit hole, as you do, like you said, on Facebook, you just get into like these rabbit holes. And I got on the helicopter side of YouTube. And I was watching a bunch of helicopter videos, um, started with like, Becky and Chris. Bec- uh, Chris is a doctor. Um, who also flies a Robinson R44 and they would do all these cool helicopter adventures. And then there's uh, this lady, I forgot her name. I, I think out in Oregon or Washington and she did like cherry drying. And so I started watching all these like helicopter videos and pretty quickly I decided this is a great way that I can enjoy my life, make money. Um, so I went to Mauna Loa Helicopters and I went to flight school. All that to say, the reason why I started social media and YouTube is to repay that. All those people that put up YouTube videos that like showed me what this life could be like, how cool helicopters are. I wanted to repay that. So I said, I'm going to go on YouTube and try to explain what it's like, how to become a helicopter pilot, the coolness about it, um, the dangers about it, and just kind of repay this awesome career that I've had by showing what it is to more people.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, so you – so I have – 12 years on you. You make me feel like an old man. So you truly, you're kind of in the position that I was just talking about. You know, you were in more of a, you know, when I was 18, I don't think Facebook was even out yet. I think I got Facebook when I was like 19, it was like, and you had to have a .edu and I wasn't a college guy. Right. So, um, like I I feel like exactly what I just said is, is exactly what we need because as an industry as a whole, Numbers are dwindling, pilot side, mechanic side, support staff, everything about uh, civil aviation and, and emphasis with helicopter aviation specifically, um, you know numbers are down. And there's a lot predicated on that. But I think it's really neat that your videos and, and the videos that you watched kind of inspired it and you're now paying it forward. Do people hit you up a lot, ask you questions? Have you, have you kind of taken on a mentor role to a lot of your, your followers?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that mentor question. And as like a the, the weird thing about aviation and like aviation in America is if you go the civilian route, you get all of your ratings and then you can become a CFI when you have like technically the experience, but you really don't. And I felt that with this YouTube channel, it's like, yes, I've been through the process and I've got like my CFI, but I'm still like a pretty young guy and very green in the industry. You know, I don't know much, but I have been able to like help people and answer their questions. You know, starting from nothing to even being a CFI, you have got a lot of knowledge and you've got a lot of information that you can share. And I've been able to do that. And I just want to touch on something that you said that's really important. And another reason why I started the YouTube channel is because uh, I think aviation as a, because of so, so social media, it's growing and people are learning about aviation. So a lot of people want to go to the airlines and they hear about all the pay in the airlines and the awesome quality of life in the travel. So the airlines and fixed wing aviation, that's getting blown up. And I think that's very popular. And that's a good thing because we need that as like a society, but the helicopter side is not being like as promoted. And like you said, the numbers are dwindling. So I wanted to like show the awesomeness of this job the awesomeness of the quality of life, the incredible pay that can be achieved. Um, start to promote the, the good parts about the helicopter industry that sometimes people don't talk about.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. And, you know, it's just a way for people to vicariously live. That's what social media is, right? Vicariously yeah. living through, you know, someone else. And when you're doing it in a way that's informative – and can help someone, I think that's really neat. You know, there's a lot of trash yeah. on social media, you know, where it's like, hey, look how awesome I am in this cool place I'm at. And it's all kind of smoke and mirrors, you know, and it's just kind of clickbait. But to actually provide or produce content that's meaningful and, and can actually move the industry in in a direction of forward, uh, I think is great. I would say that fixed wing make a lot more sense to people, right? Because from from an early age, most people have been on an airplane every once in a while you, you meet that kind of odd person. No offense if this is you listening, but they're like 40 years old and they've never been on an airplane, you know, like that's, that's rare. So I think from the very get go, I mean, I was on an airplane at age, I don't know. I was probably a baby. And then I think my earliest memory, I was four or five. And so it makes more sense. Like, Oh, I, Airplanes. I can maybe have a career in that, you know, and it's, it's just so much part of our society. So I think just by and large, that's a big factor. And recently this last few years is yes, there's people coming into the airlines, but on the same token, there's a lot of, uh, old codgers that are hitting their retirement age. And because of that, the airlines are, are dwindling in numbers. And what's an easy solution to that? well, go to the helicopter side that doesn't pay as well, offer them free airplane training and give them a guaranteed job. And then you actually start to see a mass exodus uh, of helicopters. And and it's kind of evened out. There was like a giant exodus. I exited, I got hired at Envoy to to fly airplanes. To me, it seemed like a a better long-term career opportunity. I ended up realizing that for me, that was not, not the best idea. So I, I never went anywhere with it, but you know, I think what that's done is there's some positive it's increased pay. The air medical pay from three years ago compared to now drastically changed. So, I mean, I think there's good results of that. And I think you're exactly right. If people can watch videos of, of you, a 23 year old dude, super young, congrats on already being where you're at. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. You know, they, um, you know, they can maybe, realize that helicopters are obtainable and it's something that they can do. And, and let's look, maybe we're biased here, but
0: helicopters are a lot more fun
2: than flying airplanes. They're, so.
0: In terms of like pure aviation, helicopters are way more fun. And one of the biggest selling factor to me, cause I was kind of in this conundrum too. Yes. I went down the helicopter YouTube rabbit hole and I was like infatuated with helicopters, but I also like was strategic. And I was like looking at the pay of airline pods. And I thought about the same thing too. The biggest selling factor for me for helicopters, besides the coolness of the job, like landing on highways and hovering, I mean, that's freaking awesome that you can do that, was that you can be home most nights in most jobs as a helicopter pilot, as opposed to the airlines, whether you're a domestic airline pilot or an international airline pilot, it's challenging to have a family, you know, and you're away a lot as a helicopter pilot, you can be home most nights and so that's a message i want to share to anyone that's like looking to go into this industry is a lot of jobs in the helicopter industry you can do really really cool and rewarding aviation work but also have like a pretty awesome home life too and what's the benefit of making half a million dollars a year if you're away a lot and as you grow in seniority ranks in the airlines yes you can like choose your schedule and you can have time off but it's not the same as like being home most nights as a helicopter pilot
2: yeah, and I think, you know, there's obviously, you know, in the helicopter industry, there's definitely jobs that can take you away or you're working, say, a, yes. a hitch. So you're on and off, but there's still a lot of like, you know, like my last full time job was I worked a half a year. I was gone every other week, but home the rest. So I mean, that's a pretty exactly. nice work life balance. Uh, I think one of the hard parts for airline guys would have to be like the constant hotels because yes. I think like, it's hard to eat healthy when you're at a hotel. It's, exactly. it's hard to exercise at the little crappy hotels uh, the little gym that they provide. You know, by and large you look at like a lot of older fixed-wing pilots. They look a little haggard. Like it's, you know, it's a a career of different time zones and constant hotels. Probably lots of drinking at times and, and having a good yes. time as well when you're in cool places, eating unhealthy. You know, I think it's um you know it's just a it's it's night and day compared to like helicopters and you know we just had um i think it was last week's show brad isaacs uh was on the show utility guy you know he's doing super cool stuff and it's like that's flying right he, like he's putting this helicopter on like a pair of pants and he's you know hanging a saw from the bottom and and you know sawing things he's he's short hauling human beings from the bottom of the helicopter onto lines i mean it's just like you know in the airlines press a couple buttons, sit back, you watch Netflix. Don't say you don't, because I know you do. And, <laughs> you know, and you do your thing. So, you know, I think helicopters, by and large, are a really good time. So at 23 years old, you kind of stumbled into helicopters after high school by, again, as we talked about, kind of going down a, a social media rabbit hole for, for the right reasons. What was, what was some of the beginning research, or how did you kind of determine where you ended up going to school? I know that you have a lot of cabri time, but did you did you learn in the cabri or did you go to kind of a
0: more Robinson specific flight school? Yeah, so I went down the helicopter YouTube rabbit hole and I determined that this is the decision I wanna take. So next it's like execution. How do I make this happen? How do I choose a school that I want that will accept me? And in my position, which is what a lot of people find and a lot of people specifically reach out to me about is how do I finance this? It's super expensive. Helicopters are inherently expensive. Flight school is expensive. How do I do this? So the only place I was able to go, there, there were a couple options, but the best place that fit me that I was able to go and get financing, which was the key, was Monaloa Helicopters. The way I did it is Monaloa Helicopters is like um, a program that works with the government. And you can get a student loan for that just like you would to go get your undergrad or just go to college in general. So I went to Monaloa. Loa. Got a federal student loan, and I went in Mauna Loa. They do all the Robinson stuff. So R-22s, primary for your private and your commercial, some of your instrument too. And then I did like some 44 training. So I was authorized to like teach in the Robinson R-44. So I did all my Robinson stuff to Hawaii. And then to answer your question, eventually after I got my CFI rating, I took a job in upstate New York doing some more Robinson stuff and landed at a company called Beta Technologies. And I worked there as a cabri instructor, um, as a helicopter flight instructor in the cabri. And I did about a thousand hours in the cabri. And I love that platform. And we can talk more about that when you want.
2: Yeah, no, I definitely want to touch on that and that experience. I think it's interesting. um, And I think it's, I'm glad that you said this. and, And for our listeners out there, by and large, a lot of our listeners, at least based on the feedback that I get, are guys and gals that are trying to figure out how to make this work. And obviously... Yes, helicopters are awesome. It's, it's a rewarding, fun career, but there's definitely a cost of entry. Uh, so the first and foremost thing that I say is that it's, it's okay to spend money when you're investing in yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, helicopter flight school for me probably cost around $80,000 back in the day. And I, I took student loans out as well. And to me, I look at it like, well, there's some kids that go out and buy a 50, 60, $70,000 truck right and they finance it and it's a depreciating liability it's it's not propelling them forward so i think overall the cost sounds expensive but ultimately it's a great investment in yourself and i and i think well that-
0: and let me let me give you a little bit of math on that that i was able to justify to myself so you said $80,000 whenever you went to school My total cost of schooling was approximately $115,000, which is an insane amount. Like no matter which way you square, $115,000 is a ton of money. Like you said, some people go out and buy trucks. Some people go to college, which is a great thing to do to become educated. The points that convinced me is as soon as I finished school, I was immediately hireable. I had all of the qualifications I needed. Sure, I didn't have like all the qualifications for the super cool jobs, but I had a job I had multiple job offers prior to finishing school. You know, if you get your CFI, especially your CF Double I, so you have your instrument rating as well. A lot of flight schools are looking for that. So I had multiple job offers before finishing school. So that's like a pretty good determining factor that this might be a good uh, career path. The big, the biggest thing is, so I'm three years post grad, three years post leaving flight school, and my salary is almost at hundred thousand dollars. There's not too many. I don't know. There's there's a couple jobs, but there's not a ton of jobs where you can go from being school and within two or three years being at nearly a one hundred pushing more thousand dollars. So, yes, it's extremely expensive. And that's unfortunate. And that's a pretty difficult cost of entry, especially if you can't like get a loan. Coming up with that money is challenging and can take a lot of time. But pretty quickly, once you get through your ratings, you can be making a great amount of money. A, a no, decent it's amount it's,
2: of money. Oh, no, it's true. Yeah. I mean, you're you have you have more uh, earnings potential sooner. And yes. uh and you have to play your cards right. I mean, it seems like you're a motivated dude. You know, it seems like you're a go getter, you grab the bull by the yeah. horn. You know, I think it's a lot of individual, so you know, good on you. Um that's interesting that your loan was federal. That's lucky. Um yeah. so for our listeners out there that may not quite grasp that. So essentially what Devin is saying is the, the United States government provided him a loan uh, yep. for for student training. And that's like very common of what you'll see at like going to University of Oregon or wherever you go, you know, college. Mostly the loans that are offered to those types of students are federal. Uh, when I was going through helicopter flight school, by and large, I was unable to find any government subsidized loan programs. So I had to go the private lending route um, through a company called Sally May. And and I don't know yep. if it's, it's not serviced by them anymore. And uh, But essentially, the rate was fine. It's actually not fine anymore. And I've had to now buckle down and just pay off kind of the entire debt because it's just yep. – With rate hikes, it's been crazy. But there's no opportunities – you know, like recently, you know, you, if you watch the news, I just heard three years there's been a, a pause on federal loan repayment at 0% interest, right? Um, if you have a federal student loan, you could have taken advantage of that. If you have a private loan, there's no way to take advantage of things like that. They talked about, um, I think at one point, President Biden was talking about uh, providing some debt relief on student loans. Well, that would have been applicable to a federal student loan, but not applicable to a private loan. So I think it's really exactly. cool that you brought that up. And I, I didn't even really know that was a thing. So if you're out there and you're looking, I would highly recommend trying to find a school, in, in Devin's case, Mauna Loa, that, uh, that has government <laughs> subsidized loan options because that's that's pretty neat. What was – I mean, the experience of flying in Hawaii sounds pretty awesome. Seems like a great place to live. I've actually never been to Hawaii. What is the training experience like in Hawaii? And is there a big difference when you you know, come to the mainland and, and start flying and in, in not an island?
0: Uh, it's my favorite question to answer because a lot of people think like going to Hawaii, it's an incredible place to like go learn how to fly. And it is. And I wanna be careful how I say this. Mauna Loa is a wonderful school and they gave me everything I needed. So there's no cons to Mauna Loa as a flight school. I loved Mauna Loa. Flying in Hawaii is cool and a good learning experience for certain reasons. It's very windy. So that's very challenging. And you learn pretty quickly how to get comfortable in strong winds. Um, there's all pretty much every day is a great flying day. You know, you typically don't get like really low IFR conditions. It's pretty much always VFR. So you get to fly a lot. The biggest con with flying in Hawaii and where Mauna Loa's main headquarter flight school location is, it's on the Big Island of Hawaii at the Kona International Airport. There's not a lot of anything going on on the Big Island. And when it comes to that, when you're thinking about aviation, an island is a pretty easy place to learn how to fly. If you get lost, you know you just keep going around the island, um, or you just turn around. And the airport is just on one side of the island. There's another airport on the other side, and there's an airport on the top. It's extremely simple. So when I left Hawaii, because I kind of got island fever, you know, it's like cabin fever when you're stuck in a cabin in, in a snowstorm and you can't leave. Island fever kind of feels like that. You know, once you're there for a while, you've explored everything. You can't really go and see anymore. So I was I was ready to leave. I came to New York, and my first day flight instructing i got lost you know i was not able to i i could not navigate back to the airport by myself and that was like not like a panic inducing situation obviously i was able to figure it out with no problem but you know it's kind of weird because like in hawaii it's like okay there's land and ocean in a circle very easy in new york or upstate new york or anywhere landlocked like the rest of america if you leave an airport it's not necessarily super obvious how to get back to that airport without like GPS and navigational systems and doing your flight planning. So it, it was interesting coming to uh, the mainland. The other thing about the mainland and just like a general statement about flying in America is I love general aviation America and how many airports there are, like, especially in like the Northeast, there are so many small little airports that you can fly into with FBOs and cool little buildings, General aviation in America is awesome. So that's a little tangent to answer your question.
2: No, it's awesome. And yeah, I appreciate that. And again, it's no knock on Monaloa. I've heard great things and I have had a lot of friends go to Monaloa. But I've always been curious to hear that. I've never never really got a, a good answer on kind of what it's like to train there versus what it's like coming back to the mainland. You know, it's always gonna there's there's obviously big differences. So I think
0: I think that you answered that well. And to, to add on to one more thing, if anyone's out there thinking about Mauna Loa, like I said, the school's wonderful. A couple things to consider. The cost of living is very high. It's extremely high. So finding a place to live out there can be challenging. Now, Mauna Loa, I'm not exactly sure how their program is set up now, but they did offer some off-campus housing, which I took advantage of, which was really helpful. Um, it was a bunch of flight students living in they had multiple different houses so you know you were bunked up with someone else also in flight school and that was a really great learning environment you know to talk to other students and other pilots and that's and i uh i sent you an email about kind of what i wanted to talk about but one of the benefits of going to like a big school with a lot of students going through is you've got people to talk to it's one thing to talk to your instructor your chief pilot at your flight school but it's another thing to talk to students and like for two students to co- collaborate or a group of students to collaborate and work through how do these different aviation things work um, is really beneficial. So uh, the side point was that Hawaii is pretty expensive. It's far away for family to visit. It's expensive for family to visit. You know, you got all your ratings, you got your private, your commercial and you want your family to come visit. It's pretty challenging out in Hawaii. So if you're thinking about going to Mauna Loa, do it. It's awesome. You will benefit immensely, but there are great, other schools on the mainland
2: as well. Nice. I want to talk more a little bit about training and some of the points that you said, but first a quick
1: break to hear from Bell. Bell is proud to sponsor Vertical Helicasts and their vision to hold meaningful mission, safety, and best practice conversations in the helicopter industry. The lessons learned from these conversations will undoubtedly shape the future of both new and veteran helicopter operators.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I like that point that you said, and and admittedly, it's been a while since I was at flight school. It's been a long time since I've been in that training environment, but I do remember uh, at that time, I said, essentially every person that I lived with while doing my training up at Hillsboro, uh, I was usually, uh, you know, sharing a space with another student and it was super beneficial because you're kind of going through it together and I always also looked at it as like, it's a free study session. I was not like your gold star uh, student per se, especially when it came to like the ground stuff. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like, I was young and and mature-ish, but not really. And so I took a lot of, you know, I was lucky enough that a lot of the students that were at Hillsborough were kind of older. This was like a second career for them or they had been in the military and they just had some years of life experience that I didn't have. And so because of that, they took school a little bit more seriously and I was able to like work with them outside of school to help understand some of these concepts and vice versa. And then going into like the CFI portion, it was super helpful for me. I remember we had a big whiteboard in our house next to our ping pong table. You can move the beer cans over and we could, you know, teach ground lessons to each other sometimes while drinking beer, you know, it's kind of fun, right? Yep. You know, make, make, make learning fun. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's a really cool point. I live in Redmond, Oregon now, which is just outside of bend. <clears throat> and I go to a coffee shop like daily. I do a couple hours of work there and Hillsboro Aero Academy has a campus over here. And I'm always seeing that all these kids are always coming over to the coffee shop and they got their far aim out and they got their sectional out and you know, you can tell that, you know, the group study uh, is, is super effective. So I'm glad that you brought that point up.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, it seems like we had pretty universal experiences. I'm, I'm sure uh, Hillsboro, SU, Mauna Loa, a, a couple of the really big helicopter schools where a bunch of people are living together. It's really beneficial to just have someone to bounce ideas off of. It. And like you said, just like be drinking beer and talking about like the symmetry of lift. How the hell does this work? And maybe after three beers, it makes sense.
2: Yeah, Exactly. Or or you're like, yeah, I'm just going to drink five beers and forget about it for now.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: I um, And not to mention too, <clears throat> and I don't know what your experience was like, but those guys and gals that I was creating those study relationships with in my Hillsboro days, those are guys and gals that have helped me as I've uh, traversed through my helicopter career. Uh, And vice versa, I've I've helped those individuals get to different positions and different levels. Producer Zach, who's hiding in the corner here, um, we've helped each other. You know, he's I've I've vouched for him to get jobs and and he's vouched for me to get jobs. And so that's what I love about going to a big school. There's some drawbacks. But by and large, something that I don't think people talk about enough is off the bat, going to a big school like Mauna or Hillsboro or Southern Utah, you have like 40, 50 plus other peers that will some, someday disperse within the industry. And they may have a job someday that you want. And being able to have that network right from the beginning is super invaluable. Has that been uh, kind of a similar experience for you?
0: Absolutely. It's super valuable um, just to have that network. I've had the same benefit. I've been able to bring people from I went to flight school with two new jobs. And the same thing I've been brought up by people I went to flight school with. A point on that is it's really important. And this just as a general statement for any industry is to be a good person and to treat people with respect, especially as a CFI. And this is like interesting. If you're a CFI and you're, uh, I, I won't cuss, but if you're a bad person and you don't care about your students and you're mean, that person, there's a pretty decent shot, might be your boss someday, or they might talk to your boss someday, or they could be the one that puts in a good word for you or a bad word. So in general, be a good person, you know, with everything in life, but especially in the helicopter industry, act and carry yourself with a little bit of respect, you know, treat people how you want to be treated, and that will much like, it's very likely that that will pay dividends later on. Um, yeah, and it's really important in like the hel. Another point with that is the helicopter industry is very small. So try to give yourself a good name and people in the helicopter industry remember the people that are not good and their names spread like wildfire. So if you're a good person, that helps you in the industry. If you're not, a lot of people are going to know about it.
2: Goes back to the golden rule, man. Just treat people how you want to be treated. And in fact, I forget what episode it is. So few Few episodes back I had a solo podcast. I'm doing a solo podcast series. So every every couple every other podcast or every few podcasts is just me blabbing for twenty, thirty minutes. And and the series yes. that I'm talking about, Devin, is about getting hired, going through different stages of your career. And my first episode on that series, I talked a lot about that. And actually my experience of maybe not doing it correctly. I was eighteen. I knew everything. I was arrogant. I was cocky. I was entitled. I I don't think I actually put my best foot forward on the early years of my my career or or not say even career, but just flight training. And we've mm. talked about it a million times on the show. Like your your interview starts the day that you start flight school. Those those guys exactly. and gals in management are gonna know who you are. They're gonna know if you have a good attitude. And so Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you you bring it up again, because if you're listening and and you've been a continual listener, there's a common theme. All these guys and gals that come on the show that are successful today have one sole point, and that's to just not be a jerk. Be a good person. Work hard. Treat people how you want to be treated. And that should go for any industry, but specifically a helicopter industry where really it is such a micro niche thing. It's not uncommon that your student will be your boss someday, or this, you know, the person that you had an issue with at flight school is now the director of operations at a a large air medical company that you want to work for. I mean, you just never know. And if you do it right, this industry is amazing because you have so many friends that all think the way you think they love flying helicopters. Like you love flying helicopters. You fly helicopters all day. Like I I was flying at Maverick with producer Zach, and you know, we would we would fly all day and then we would go to the bar or go to a restaurant or whatever, and we would just talk about flying all night. You know, it's like it's it's like what we love to do. So I think that's super rewarding. So you learned in a Robinson product, uh, but then you uh went over to Beta Air Technologies in Vermont. Uh I've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, so I'm not gonna go hugely into it, but beta air technologies is Super cool. My experience was my buddy Ian, sales manager for my business, Celicopter. He was like, Hey, you wanna we we're doing we were doing like a we're going around the Northeast corridor and, and shaking hands and networking and whatnot. Hey, there's this company that's building this EV tall. You wanna go check them out? And I'm thinking we're gonna walk into like this little dark hangar with some smart people, you know, putting together some contraption you know, little did I know, I I felt like I walked into like, you know, Tony Stark laboratories uh, of this amazing facility. And the thing that caught me was all the training aircraft. And I think at that time when I visited, they said they had like 15 or 16 full-time CFIs. And you were, if you're an employee there, you had the opportunity to go through airplane training, helicopter training. And with the helicopter, they used the cabri. So how did you how did you discover Beta Air? What was that like? What what's the process of of getting that kind of that first? Was that your first job, or did you? I guess you said you had another CFI job before that.
0: Yeah. So immediately after leaving Hawaii, I took a job in upstate New York, just working at a relatively small flight school, flying in the Robinson R twenty two. I built up close to I don't know maybe seven or eight hundred hours. And I was ready to look for something better and something that pays a little bit more. Like I, like we said about um, connections in the industry, that's how I heard about Beta Air. I, there was a guy that worked there. He reached out to me and he said, hey, if you're looking for a new job, come up here. Beta Air, like you said, they're developing a really cool product. They give everyone flight training, which is really cool. Now, specifically about the Cabri, the reason they wanted to fly the Cabri, and for anyone that doesn't know, it's a small two-seater helicopter that uses a Lycoming O360 engine, just like a Robinson R22. One of the biggest, I guess, the two biggest selling features of this helicopter is it has a third blade, and it becomes an articulated rotor system, and it has a finisher tail rotor. Um, flying this helicopter was It was a huge step up from the Robinson. Um, Everyone has the things they love about Robinson's and hate about Robinson's. Probably the number one thing that most people hate about Robinson's is the T-bar cyclic. And I got used to it. You know, you get used to flying from the left and right seat using this T-bar cyclic. Once I got into the cabbie, the first thing I noticed that was like really interesting was like, holy crap, this feels like a real helicopter because there's a cyclic between your legs where it should be. Um, It felt like a real helicopter. I love the Cabri. I think it is by far the greatest training platform that exists. The Schweitzer 300 is really great. The Instrum's great. And Robinson's are also great. But the Cabri takes it to a different level. Uh, like I said, it has the same engine as a Robinson R22, the O360. But with that third blade, the biggest factor is like the rotor inertia. You can enter an auto rotation and you don't feel like you have to manage your RPM so much an interesting point about it is if you chop the throttle, your RPMs don't de- decay immediately. And, you know, as a CFI, when I send my students out on a solo, I want to know that there's a little bit of buffer for them to have that thought like, oh, crap, something's wrong. Oh, crap, my engine failed, and then get the collective down. And a Robinson R22, it, I'm pr- I was pretty worried about that as a CFI, that, like, you have to get the collective down immediately. So having that third blade, there's more inertia. I'm not worried about people walking into the tail rotor with the finish um, I could go on and on, but it's an incredible platform.
2: Yeah, it's super cool. Does it actually have powered locks?
0: Um, yes, yes. There's like a key fob, <laughs> so you yes. can like click it locked and walk away.
2: Since I've uh, since I was stalking you, Facebook kind of does like that. I like watching your videos now, so that like popped yeah. up.
0: I think yesterday.
2: I'm like, oh that's, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, yeah, but- there's a little key fob. You can
0: put it on your keys, click it, lock, unlock it, and walk away. Uh, and I guess the reason that they need that is there's not a a, a starter key, you know, so it's an electronic ignition, like maybe like an R44. No, even the R44 has the key. Like any bigger helicopter, like in uh, A Star, a 407, whatever, there's not a key, you know, it's just like a starting sequence with a button. So the cabri doesn't have a key. It's got a starting sequence with a push button. So you had to have a little bit of protection. I imagine that's the reason.
2: Yeah. And for our listeners out there that are maybe in the midst of their training or thinking about training, I want to just dial down the point that Devin was talking about there. And that's what I've heard about the cabri is the blade inertia, you know, essentially flying an R22, even compared to saying an R44, You know, one thing that you'll notice when you're doing auto rotations in an R22 is you have to be fairly active for the most part in managing your RPMs. You can get to a point. I mean, I've done so many autos in an R22 that you could dial in your entry, give a little pitch pull right off the bat and kind of like set it and forget it as long as you maintain a nice steady state. But that's after doing like thousands and thousands and thousands of autos. So by and large, for the students that are listening, you're probably more used to a situation where you enter your auto, your eyes are maybe inside, your nose drops a little bit. You look up, you panic, you pull back, your RPMs shoot up because it's a low inertia rotor system. So they go up fast and they decay fast. And there's just a lot, uh, there's a lot to manage. I remember uh, getting into like a 206, like a Bell 206 and doing autos. And I, o- I almost oversped the rotor system on the first uh simulated, you know, throttle chop, call it, because, you know, I slammed down the collective and the bell instructor was like, yo, just lower it lightly and give a little aft cyclic. And then I remember being like, well, in, in the actual auto, it's like the, the RPMs weren't doing anything. They were just staying exactly where they were. I could push the cyclic forward and I could go backwards. I could pitch pull. Nothing really was moving the RPMs like I was used to. And so that's what Devin's talking about in the Cabri. And that's what I've heard as well is that because it's a higher inertia rotor, uh, it's a little bit easier to manage in the auto. Is that? Am I saying that correctly?
0: Absolutely, yeah. You, When you enter an auto rotation in a Robinson, like you said, you're extremely active on not only the cyclic, but the collective, and you're really manipulating the controls um, as a student. Once you become a CFI, and like you said, you've done thousands, you start to become more comfortable. When I taught people how to do auto rotations in the cabbie, pretty immediately, they were like pretty decent at them to the point where I felt comfortable with them if they actually had an engine failure, you know, you lower the collective and you're really not as worried about RPMs. You know, you'll glance. And of course I teach them their scans and their flows and make sure you're paying attention to your RPM because it's the most important thing, but I'm not worried so much that it's going to decay or shoot up super high. It stays relatively stable. And then they can take a breath and focus on in our hypothetical training situation, where you're going to go land um, get a Mayday call out, you know do the, all the other things that you're supposed to do, but you don't have to be like so 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 focused on just holding RPMs, let alone like airspeed, let alone trying to navigate to a spot. So students were much easier they, they were able to more quickly understand auto rotations. It's also like a very stable platform, those three blades. And just a side point, as like a Robinson student, I went to the Robinson uh, factory training course. You know, so you learn and you get to do more cool stuff with the Robinson. I also did that with the Cabri and I learned some really great things at that course. In the Robinson R22, I always felt very uncomfortable doing full downs. You could do them, and yes, it would work, obviously, but it always felt uncomfortable and sketchy. In the Cabri, I feel I felt extremely comfortable doing full-down autorotations just because of that inertia. You could enter the autorotation, go through the flare, obviously with the throttle off, get it level, and you could just so easily gent that, uh, set the helicopter down because it adds so much inertia. So teaching students full-down autorotations, I felt more comfortable as a CFI, and they could really understand what it felt like to go all the way down to the ground. And the entire learning experience was much better in the Cabri than it was in an R-22.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I don't have any cabri experience. Um and you know, I look forward to hopefully having the opportunity someday to to fly cabri around and check it out. I have a lot of love for for Robinson though. Um Yeah, me too. And I you know, I did so many fold downs in an R22 specifically. I did like fold downs for 3 years straight. And you know, from that perspective, I got pretty good at it. Like I just was really good at building my RPM. I could tack it, you know, right 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 on the edge hold it level raise if i had like a 5 knot wind i could usually do with little to no ground run but then yeah. having your student do that is a different story right and that's when it that's yeah. when it gets really nice to have something that's maybe a little bit of a higher inertia you know it's it's funny i look back man it kind of scares me i i was probably your age 23 24 years old you know doing all these fall downs and you know, knock on wood, I never actually bent any metal, which is surprising. I think if yeah. you do enough R twenty two fold downs with students, at some point you're you're going to hurt something. Uh, yep. But I was fortunate enough. Uh, I did have a little bit of a stinger strike one time. But yeah, that, who does that, it? That, that does happens, it, you know? right? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know if I <laughs> yeah. count that. So that's neat. I um, I I'm curious of your thoughts on this. This is kind of out of left field. But uh, on a previous podcast, that I believe by the time your podcast airs, this this podcast would already aired as well. It's a it's a I was talking to the CEO of a company called Rotor uh, AI, mm-hmm. and it's a company that's just launched a video a few weeks back where they've essentially created a fully autonomous R22, and and mm-hmm. they're moving that autonomy into the 44. And they want to do, you know, get it in into other helicopters and things like that. And Hector, the CEO, super smart guy, MIT guy, really nice, wants to make the industry safer. But the whole, like, taking the pilot outside of the aircraft is kind of a, is a weird concept, you know, and it's still something I'm kind of grappling with. What What are your thoughts on where helicopter technology is going? I mean, you worked at Beta. You got to see their cool eVTOL that they're making, which is still a, a manned pilot deal. I get to fly the simulator there. That was pretty cool. Um, what, what is your thoughts on where the helicopter industry is going in regards to all the technology that we're seeing now?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I, To be honest, I don't know. I think if anyone's wanting to go into the helicopter industry now, it's a great time. It's always been a great time. I think you could have a super solid... Minimum ten year career, twenty year career, probably still being a helicopter pilot. I I, I don't know what I see beyond twenty five years, and that's a very long ex, uh, projection out. I think helicopter autopilots and complete autonomous helicopter autopilot is much further out than like completely autonomous airplane flying. the The reason I have hesitation to will it ever happen is because drones service a certain market, and there are already extremely advanced drones that are doing what they're doing. They still have not overdone the helicopter thing. There's certain things that a pilot can only do. And like EMS, I don't think there will ever be a not pilot platform doing that. You think about like the airlines, they have all the technology in the world where an airplane can land itself. They still keep the pilot there because it's important to have... a person that can think logically and handle certain situations that a computer can't. I think it's the same with helicopters. Maybe certain aspects of the industry go away, but I think there are certain fundamental jobs, probably like wildland firefighting, um, certain types of law enforcement, and maybe EMS where you have to have a pilot for certain aspects.
2: Yeah. No, I think, I I think you're right. I think it's, you know, you, you have to be adaptable, right? Things are going to change. Technology is always transforming and moving forward. So you have to have some like adaptability, but it's, it, it's a kind of a scary thing a little bit. Cause you know, like, like we talked about in the very beginning of the episode, it's all about helicopters are all about the awesomeness of being in the helicopter, the, the noise, the vibration, the, the connection that you get with the machine. And, you know, it's a little bit of a scary thought that that could be eliminated in the future, you know? And, and again, maybe, I, I maybe, agree. Maybe it's a fight, you know, maybe it's a, maybe there's a, a a world in which both survive and live. I mean, when I flew air medical, my helicopter had a two axis autopilot. I used the crap out of it. I loved, I loved using the autopilot, uh, yeah. to help me with my workload. It, it was a nice tool to have, but then there was a lot of times where I'd turn the autopilot off and hand fly the aircraft because I enjoy doing that. So, uh, I think that there's there's maybe a kind of a mixture of, of the two. Before we go on, though, we've got to take one more sponsor call.
1: As always, a special thanks to Selicopter for producing this podcast. Specializing in helicopter evaluations, faster sales, and superb service, Celicopter is the go-to agency for clients expecting immediate results. Helicopter's team of helicopter professionals are the best in the business. Using their aviation expertise, a nationwide network and a proprietary 76-step listing strategy, Helicopter will convert your listing from Mayday to Payday. Ready to get started? Text HELICOPTER to one 855 That's HELICOPTER to one 735 5226 And a Helicopter pilot agent will reach out. Helicopter, List it. Sell it. Done.
2: All right, so uh, Devin... Uh Great conversation so far. It's it's been really fun talking with you. Uh, Twenty three, you, right you, you got a good you got a good head on your shoulders. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy being, in my opinion, young and having to be like super professional. Uh, it's a hard. I think it's a hard pill to swallow, especially for like a lot of young men, uh, me included. I started helicopter flight training similar to you at you know eighteen, nineteen years old. I mean, by the time I was 23, I I think I had over a thousand hours and was the assistant chief at Hillsborough, And it was difficult to be like young and, and be be beyond, you know, so, you know, kudos to you. It seems like you have a really good head on your shoulders and, and that you're doing really cool things within the industry. I know now that you've transitioned uh, into a, A tour and one thirty-five charter operations flying turbine aircraft. What what are you in the four hundred seven?
0: Yeah, in the four hundred seven.
2: What was what was the experience like for you? For our listeners out there, that you know, hey, maybe they just hit their thousand hours or or twelve hundred hours piston time. They've been instructing. It's time to move to that next step. What was that process like for you? And what was it like, kind of going through that interview process? Those those nerves, the this this big first turbine job. Just kind of walk me through that.
0: Yeah. So after I got my CFI time, an interesting thing about me is, so I stayed as a CFI up until fifteen hundred hours, which is a pretty long time to stay CFI. The reason I wanted to do that is I wanted to go down to the Gulf and the Gulf hires the job I was looking at hired at fifteen hundred hours. So I was like, I'll just stick through it. Um, that job ended up not working out for different reasons. So I found a different job up here in New York city. Um, and for anyone that's like building their time in Robinson or whatever platform piston platform you're flying in that turbine job is as good as you could expect it to be. That turbine helicopter is as good as you could expect it to be. It is the greatest. If you're wondering if it's really as great as it sounds, it is it's keep grinding, keep pushing. Turbine helicopters are really where it's at. I have all the love, like you said in the world for Robinson platforms. They got me to where I am. Um, I love the Robinson helicopters. I love piston helicopters and I, and I'll fly them again. And I, I love to fly them, but turbine helicopters are awesome. Um, I was really concerned about flying turbine helicopters. Not that I couldn't do the stick skills. I can, I can fly a helicopter just as good as anyone can fly a helicopter. I was worried about like understanding the fundamentals of it. When I went to Mauna Loa helicopters, there was a little bit of learning about how a turbine engine works. And I knew like the basics of how it worked, but I knew how a piston engine worked. I could teach a piston engine. I understood it. I could diagnose it, but I didn't really understand how a turbine engine worked. And like, what is MGT and what is NG and what is N1 and N2? And like all these foreign concepts that you just don't experience in the piston world. It, it really wasn't that big of a transition. Um, the the company I worked for, they did all my onboard training and they explained it really well. Turbine engines are probably sim- uh, simpler to understand than a piston engine. A piston engine has got a lot of moving parts, a lot of weird stuff going on. Turbine engines are very easy to understand. They're very reliable. They're as good as people say they are. Um, and I love flying turbine helicopters. It just it, ma- it makes me feel safer. The power you can do, the power you have is awesome. So it, it wasn't that big of a transition. And if you're concerned about not understanding, like, the, specif- the specifications of, like, how a turbine engine works or, like, the numbers or the lingo, it's not that big of a transition. And it's not that big of a jump. And if you're a helicopter pilot, you're inherently a, a smart person, so you'll be able to do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a little bit of a learning curve. And I remember going through my first turbine transition at Hillsboro when I jumped over to their charter side. And I remember being like, hold on, time out. What is N2? And what is N1? You know, (laughs) you know, TOT or MGT, as you say, you know, what, what, what is all this, you know? And and essentially it's not a, a super complex thing to learn. And I agree. Right. You know, air comes in, it's ignited. It, it's, it's, spins these wheels that gets transferred into a transmission, turns your rotor. I mean, it's not rocket science and you don't necessarily need to know every working point of the turbine engine to be a good turbine helicopter pilot. I think you just have to understand unlike a Robinson that on your, on your propulsion gauges specifically, those red lines have consequences. There's, there's, there's times where you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm hot and heavy right now. And I'm going to use my, I'm going to pull a little bit over the red line. I have 10 seconds to do it, you know, and that's going to get me out of this hole on this highway that I'm in, you know, or whatever it may be. And, and actually I was fortunate. I did a ton of flying with a, with a guy in Robinson helicopters and he was the chief instructor when I was the assistant chief and he had come back from the industry. So he had, he'd been flying turbine helicopters for like 12 years. And mm-hmm. he, he taught me how to fly a Robinson, like a turbine, like, mm-hmm. you know, cause one thing I think is a misconception is yeah, you have all this power, but typically that's negated by now you have a full payload and your power is now limited because you're at max gross weight all the time. And similar to like an R22, or I should say a profile that my buddy Marcus taught me, you know, getting through ETL, setting your power. And not allowing, you know, not touching the collective as you transition, you know, into ETL and then actually reducing your power, you know, all these things. And, and they were really helpful. So I think if you're flying a Robinson helicopter, uh, fly it like you're at max gross weight and turbine and that red line means something, because ultimately that's going to be the scenario that you're going to be someday. And that was really helpful for me. So I don't know if, if, if that kind of resonates yeah. with you at all.
0: So yes, turbine helicopters have a crap ton of power. There's so much power. The only time you will ever feel that is like when you are solo with nothing else in the helicopter. Other than that, every single operator is going to fill you up to the max gross weight. You're you're pretty much always going to be flying at the limit of the helicopter with every ounce of weight that they can squeeze in there. So your power management that you learn in a Robinson R-22, totally 100% transfers to a turbine um you have to be very cognizant in r 22 on a hot day and a turbine helicopter it's the same thing so when i've got like a full charter load with all the bags and all the fuel to make it to some point like i'm sure you did with ems you're as heavy as you can be so you have to figure out where's the wind coming from how can i make this takeoff profile um, as safe as possible, the most efficient for the helicopter. All those things that you learn in flight school, totally transfer. And it's not like you get into the turbine world and you can just like rip the collective and do whatever you want. Cause you really can't, you will be at all of your limits in a turbine helicopter, just like you would be in a piston helicopter.
2: Yeah. I mean, payload is usually equals money, whether it's cargo or people, you know, that's how operators are getting paid. So they want to put as many
0: people in as possible. Uh, and another thing with that, that's really interesting that I, uh, specifically flying charters now, is in like an R-22 and just like obviously in the training world, you're you're pretty chill. You know, you're really not on a time limit. You're trying to build time, go slow, you know, fly at 60, 70 knots. Once you get into like the 135 charter operations where there's money on the line and like the EMS world where there's lives on the line, even though you probably shouldn't think of it like that, you're flying fast. You're flying as fast as the helicopter will let you. So you're flying at the limit, your max continuous power always to get places as fast as possible. And like in the 135 world where you're trying to make money, they want you to fly as quickly as possible to get places, which is, and th- there's a ton of different mind shift changes that happen when you go from the training world to like a a different type of helicopter flying. Um, But that was an interesting one. It's just fly fast always. Yeah.
2: And I think it's sometimes, especially like when you're at a higher time CFI, you kind of get this burnout and like, all you can think about is man, I got to get to that next step. And, and you do, uh, that's the next step getting into a turbine helicopter and, and working 135 job or whatever it may be. But one thing that you will miss is the amenity, the freedom of being a flight instructor. When you fly a charter, you're flying a charter to the location where the the paying client wants to go. Uh, When you're flying tours, you're flying the same route that your operator has established and tells you to fly. Where in the flight school environment, at least my experience, especially as a CFI and having different students in different parts of training, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to start a flight in the morning where I'm, doing, you know, off airports for two hours, you know, in the, in the coast range of Oregon uh, then to jump in another helicopter and go do two hours of full downs and then go and do a cross country, uh, you know, and then finish the day up by doing a a photo flight somewhere, you know, whatever it may be. There was so much freedom in that. uh, Whereas you don't really get that when you get into the quote unquote real world of flying. So Look, I get it. You got to move on. You're, 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 if you're listening to the episode right now, and you're like, "Man, I don't want to be a CFI anymore." I, I, I felt that feeling before, but try to, you know, make the positive. As this is being a CFI is the only job where you have just unlimited freedom. In, in my experience. complete
0: anonymity, you are truly the boss. Um, yeah, like you said, you can do whatever you want. Like there were many times where I'd go from. A flight with a student where I don't touch the controls once, you know, I'm not hands off, but essentially hands off and they can do whatever they want. They've got total control. I don't touch the radios. I'm, I'm just hanging out for the ride to the next flight where I'm trying to teach a three hour private, how to hover a helicopter. And, and then you go and do off airports and then you go do engine failures. And then you're like teaching someone how to make like a normal approach. So being a CFI, yes, there are tons of, It just feels like a drag, a grind, and like you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. But it's really a fun, enjoyable time teaching all these people. And one, as we talk about being a CFI, I think it's really, really, really important that you are a good CFI. If you're going to become a helicopter pilot and the route that you plan is, I'm going to go get my private, my commercial, and my CFI, and I'm going to build my time through being a CFI by teaching other people, it's really critical that you are selfless and that you care about your students and that you're a good cfi because you're making another pilot um and it's the most important it's arguably one of the most important jobs in the world in my opinion obviously i say that because i'm a pilot and a cfi but it really matters that you care about the safety of your student that you're teaching them good practices and that you're not doing it just for the selfish purpose of building time and you're trying to make them as best as you can use that time to like obviously build yourself up, but really focus on being a good instructor and helping your students and not just being self selfish.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great point. You know, I, I always looked at it like you are teaching the individuals that will be flying in your same airspace. So how do you Mm -hmm. want them to fly? How do you want them to act? And, you know, you want to create a good product. I had a, I had an instructor and he was an okay guy. Um, european guy a lot of europeans at, at the flight school that i went to and, and they yep. were on a time crunch like they had to get hours 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 because they had one year i think is, is how the visa worked but i remember like we were flying one time and i was i was just kind of over the flight we, we had been doing a bunch of autos they weren't going great i was fatigued i just kind of hit my limit and being a privately funded guy through a student loan every dollar counts every minute i'm in the helicopter that's money that i'm spending and I remember he was like, oh no, we need to keep flying for another, you know, half hour so I can hit seven hundred hours today. And um and I remember thinking to myself, like, that's crappy. Like that point five I'm not gonna get anything from. And this is just strictly so you can have this, you know, achievement. So don't be that guy. Because I think that that's kind of a you're kind of being a tool, in my opinion.
0: Exactly. And yeah, and that puts a stain on the student. Um and as a CFI, you need to know the limit of your student. Obviously, you have taught that when you're a CFI is like how to know the limit of your student. But you really need to and have the best interest of your student at heart before yourself. It's like being a teacher, being a really good teacher, like in elementary school. You know, being selfless at the core and providing for the student and keeping them safe and keeping yourself safe.
2: One hundred percent, Devin. I feel like you have a ton to share, so I think I need to get you back on a podcast uh, in the next. So- <laughs> I'd love to in the not so far future. Uh, but we are up against our time today. So I really appreciate you coming on Devin. Where can our listeners find you on social media on YouTube?
0: Yeah. So every, all of my handles are the same. It's pilot uh, Devin, D E V I N on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok as well. I haven't been posting content cause I recently just had a kid. So that's why I'm not, uh, posting content. But yes, I have joined the dad community, which is awesome. And like you said, I should come back. It'd be it'd be fun to talk about how that kind of changes how you fly and the jobs you want to do. But uh, Pilot Devin, I've got a bunch of educational content that I try to teach people and just some cool stuff. So you can find me there.
2: Yeah, I'm serious, guys. I, I, I No lie. I stumbled a, a, across Devin just by, you know, Facebook, knowing that I like helicopter videos. And and okay. I went down the Dev, the pilot Devin, uh, rabbit hole. And there's some great content. <laughs> I knew that this would be a really fun podcast. So thank you. Congratulations on having the kid. That's super exciting. Thank you. I'm a, man. For I'm sure. really behind. I'm 35. I'm still, I'm not there yet, but maybe soon we'll see. That's okay, uh, man. That's
0: okay.
2: <laughs> we'll see, man. I'm I'm, I'm, chance, I feel so. very grateful
0: and blessed that I was able to have a kid young. Um, well, words relatively a, young, you know, I feel. In the
2: words, in the words of like uh, medical professionals, I think at 35, it's now like you're considered geriatric, you know, for, for like <laughs> yeah, pregnancy purposes. Exactly. It's wild to me. So, anyway, uh, two vertical helicasts, our platform. Thank you so much for making this podcast possible. Thank you to Bell Helicopters, of course. Uh, Devin's a, a, a Bell driver now, so he certainly gets yeah. to enjoy the 407. Yep. I love the 407, I love the 206. Haven't had the yep. opportunity to fly the 429 yet. Really want to fly the, the Bell 429. Hopefully someday uh, we can yeah. make that a reality. And of course, special thanks to my company, who is also a sponsor of the Helicopter Podcast, Cellicopter. And to our listeners, thank you guys for engaging. You guys have made it possible to continue to grow. And I'm just so grateful. So please like, share, and subscribe. Mr. Bowen, thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, let's get me. you on uh, in the not so distant future.
0: Awesome. Thanks.